0: this podcast may include adult content welcome to bound off a literary audio broadcast since 2006 we've been publishing great stories for a worldwide audience these next two episodes will be our last until we go on an indefinite hiatus we're wrapping up our eighth year of podcasts with some stories from our archive which we will maintain at boundoff.com many thanks to everyone on the bound off staff Who put in countless volunteer hours to produce more than 100 episodes we're also grateful to our financial supporters who allowed us to pay our authors for their work we've published almost 200 different writers in this edition we have five of our favorite stories from the past episodes selected by boundoff staff the stories are our trip to the moon written by bob thurber elegy for a hometown written by robert dana The Grazers, written by Joe Farley. Telescope, written by Naomi J. Williams. And Parade for Hendrick, written by Stephanie Nellen. Our Trip to the Moon, written by Bob Thurber, read by Ann Rushton. Listing time 2 minutes 57 seconds.
1: When my brother and I were barely more than babies, our grandfather took us to the moon. I don't expect anyone to believe me, and frankly, I don't remember how we got there, what we did for air or how we got back, and neither, sadly, does my brother. This was right after our mother had died in a horrible accident, so we were still pretty young my brother barely walking, me just turned three. And at those ages, a person's sleep patterns are still pretty crazy, so I'm guessing we snoozed on the ride there and back. If we went in a rocket or some kind of spaceship, we probably had padded seats our comfy little beds with straps to hold us in. But if we got to the moon by a ladder, then I guessed my grandfather must have carried us, each on a shoulder, like two uneven sacks of grain. I do remember we were dressed in heavy fur coats with hoods over clinging knitted caps, and that we wore rubber boots and wool mittens with long, colorful scarves cured around half our faces, and that it was very dark and very cold. "'My brother was petrified of the dark, and he's still afraid of it now. "'And though I've never been afraid of anything, "'I didn't like the extreme cold or the strangeness of the place. "'I want to go home,' I said boldly. "'We just got here,' Grandpa said. "'Trey wants to go, too,' I said, pointing at my brother, "'who was clinging to Grandpa's leg like a bear cub stuck up in a tree "'and whimpering like one, too. "'Listen to me,' Grandpa said. "'This is a great place,' I used to bring your mother here when she was a little girl. She loved it, and I'll tell you why. Nothing changes here. Not ever. Unlike Earth, there's no erosion. No wind or rain, no storms or volcanic activity to shift what's beneath your feet change the surface. Nothing ever gets washed away or covered over or swallowed up. Nothing gets folded back inside itself, then buried and forgotten. Have a quick look around. The footprints made by the first Apollo astronauts are right over there, and they'll remain visible for as long as the moon exists. Then he grins like a crazy cat in that crazy story. Your mother's footprints are here too, he said. See if you can find them. Then Grandpa just let us run loose. We went together, my brother and I, holding hands, and we found our mother's footsteps faster than if we had a map. We placed our feet inside her prints, which weren't much bigger. We hopped a few strides, tracing her trail, leaping higher and easier than I expected. Then we got tired of all that and just played in the dust like it was snow, stomping around, leaving patterns, making snow angels, kicking up so much moon dust that it floated around us like we were inside a snow globe that someone had given a really hard shake. I imagine he did that, my grandfather. He was always shaking things up. The end.
0: Elegy for a Hometown Written and read by Robert Dana Listening time, three and a half minutes
2: uh, Elegy for a Hometown I'm done now With the dark houses Of the east My hometown The book Is closing on my generation Skinner Satin Mills long gone to producing brass and machine gun clips and milk bottle caps are now themselves long gone. And the orchard of 10,000 apple trees that fed our insatiable boyish hungers, a wilderness of stumps and weeds. Even the rivers changed course leaving Walpole's cove bleached and dry, where in winter local farmers sawed thick blocks of ice, skidding them up a frozen ramp to waiting wagons. Horses named Belle and Sophie, stamping and steaming and shaking their harnesses until they rang. My Polack neighbor's dairy farm's now a golf course. Teas and greens and easy fairways. We once killed black snakes there through the long summers. And forking up corners, save the sweet smelling windrowed hay from oncoming rain, Chef stinging our sweat-drenched bodies like shirts of nettle. So what's to say when a whole chunk of your life comes up missing? You say to yourself, well, there it is. Or, well, there it was, wasn't it? God's his own voyeur. After more than half a century, I walk the town with the only man who knows my name. Soon I'll bury my own shadow and slip away like sunlight. Simplicity's what I'm best at. In the end, a small box of a house by the sea No electricity, no running water, dirt floored, prayer, wind, and slapdash from the whereafter.
0: The Grazers, written by Joe Farley, read by Mark Rushton. Listing time, 5 minutes 22 seconds. We were at the onset of our teen years, about 10 or so of us wild in the streets during the summer before our 8th grade year. Our fathers worked blue-collar jobs at nearby steel mills and manufacturing plants. Some of our moms toiled the conveyor belts at factories for 8 hours a day, while the others filed away as secretaries. There we huddled, at the crossroads of being too young to have jobs, but old enough to crave money to fill the potholes of boredom. We couldn't even scrounge up the $2 each it cost to jump in the public pool. Born from the marriage of heat and listless idling was a hardened state of making do with whatever our surroundings happened to be. Typically, there were only two houses we'd pile together at and spend the rest of the day. At one of the houses, my friend's grandma would appear from the basement. She spoke no English and resembled the image of what I thought a gypsy looked like when I imagined one, scarves wrapped around her head, a shawl-looking garment from feet to neck, and a broom in her hand that she'd shake at us while rattling off hyper screams of Macedonian, like a Southeast European auctioneer. One nickname she would address all of us by, I'd learned by the loose translation of, was, quote, Cattle of all cattle. She was right. We were animals. It wasn't often, but sometimes my house was the one everyone would meet up and hang out. It made me nervous to have anyone over because my parents were pretty strict, And as my mom and dad would pull in the driveway, my friends scattered, and I'd be left to incur a wrath if anything seemed out of the ordinary. Panic droplets of sweat would shoot off my forehead, as if I were a character in a comic strip, watching my friend Pete sink his index finger into a brand new pack of bologna, pulling out five pieces of the lunch meat, dangling it over his head, and feeding himself this barbaric treat, like he was the lion and the lion tamer. Hunger was a constant issue. We used the sort of ingenuity inmates apply to liven up their daily existence, learning out of similar desperation. Instead of making liquor from fermented orange juice, we made do with a nearby family fun park called Celebration Station. The place was a sprawl of miniature golf, batting cages, go-karts, and video games. It was also a host to many a kid's birthday party, where you'd be seated next to a stage where curtains jerk back awkwardly and animatronic animals were to life as a formed band bedecked in Hawaiian shirts and cowboy hats played instruments and sang birthday theme music to fidgety, bored adults and spastic children. What I don't recall is how we ended up there with no money. What I do remember is why we found a way to keep going back. It was hot out, so we were lazing around on the second floor of the place to cool off. This area usually did not find many people in it except on the weekends, perfect for a group of idiot kids to take up space in. A left-behind debris of a now-over party, sat on a table adjacent to us, half-eaten pizzas, sitting on thin, circular tins, one-fourth pitchers of soda, abandoned scraps of garlic bread and cake. I don't think anyone even said anything, not even a, say, what if we... We simply transformed into one mind, body, and spirit vulture, descending upon dismissed heaps of food garbage. Pressing a pitcher of pop to my lips to wash a cram slice down my throat, I paused and took in what I was seeing. We were American soldiers, rations dwindling, having been lost in the blurring jungles of Vietnam, and finally stumbling upon a deserted outpost, flushed with ripe for the taking food. Once the thrill began to pass, still eating, we all started laughing like Vikings, squealing at our newly discovered life hack. We all knew our listless days of starving had come to an end. We'd beaten God at his own game. For the next two months, all we needed was a ride to this mini-idea of an, of an amusement park, and we'd fend for ourselves. The balcony became our lookout tower. We'd watch with intensity as a party wound down. To our benefit, whoever had the job of bussing the tables was lazy. There wasn't even a ten count, as we scrambled down the stairs and into the waiting arms of shitty free food that tasted like the finest of gourmet dishes to a bunch of poor and deprived 13-year-olds. The only... Mafia becoming too powerful and too careless moment came when eyeing the only table with inhabitants. Fifteen minutes had passed since they'd arrived. Some of our arms were draped lazily over the second floor ledge. Business was slow and we were hungry and bored. Downstairs, all the kids and the parents scurried away to the ball pit and arcades, leaving the table empty and opened. Employees emerged into the empty dining area hoisting serving trays giant pizzas rode in on. We jolted to life. These people must have ordered in advance. The servers laid out the trays and pitchers on the table. We all looked at each other. Again, no words. My right shoulder bounced off the wall of the stairway as my friend slammed under my left shoulder, bounding down what we sought, fresh food. We did it. I don't really remember how of it, but we did it. We ate the food and tore away laughing to the batting cages, scot-free, full and out of breath. Cattle grazing on a secret patch of grain. Cattle of all cattle. It's the closest I'll probably ever feel to escaping from prison. The End Telescope. Written and read by Naomi J. Williams. Listing time 13 minutes.
3: Telescope. We lost the Calder in 1825. I was never afraid, during the wreck or after. By then I had come to understand the uselessness of fear. It was one of the things I learned, living on board as the captain's wife. I had not set out to learn it, of course. That is the way of lessons at sea. They come at you without warning, without your curiosity, without your consent. Like the telescope. I had certainly never wondered how it would feel to have a telescope break in pieces over my head. "'but I learned it all the same. "'That was a month before the wreck. "'I had occasionally tried the telescope, "'but never could see what the men saw, "'though I looked till my eyes ached for looking. "'I had good eyes for writing, "'even in the poor light of our stateroom, "'and a clean, steady hand, "'even in a rolling sea. "'Aye, Mary, you have a beautiful figure on the page,' "'the captain liked to say,' laughing as he admired the journal entries he dictated to me. But good eyes and a steady hand do not suffice with a mariner's telescope. An instinct for sighting, fair weather or foul on the horizon, danger or opportunity in a landfall or distant sail, the white foam that signals deadly shoals, that instinct I lacked. When the telescope first struck me, I thought we had run aground. I saw my servant, an Indian girl I called Nancy, grab my daughter and lead her below. I had time to wonder, before the next blow, if they would be safe. I thought we'd struck rock, and it amazed me how it felt like my own skull cracking. And it would have been, had the telescope been a finer instrument. That is what our Bengali steward said to me afterward, a man with enormous eyes and a mouth hidden behind an overgrown mustache He tended to me in my cabin, and I wished, not for the first time, that we'd chosen the man who spoke no English. But even parting my lips a little sent sharp, slicing pains through my head. So I said nothing, and he talked. He reminded me about the cheese. That was the provocation, burnt cheese. He told me that before I fainted, I'd tried to collect the pieces of the telescope as they fell around me, wood splinters broken glass, brass fittings, and tried to put them back together, kneeling on the deck. He told me the captain had carried me down the companionway himself, that he had wept, that he had said, Mary, you careless, careless girl. I don't doubt that the captain carried me down, or that he wept, but I expect what he really said was, Mary, you careless bitch. I was retrospectively grateful for the poverty of two years before, which had led the captain to the second-hand telescope, made of soft wood, wood that yielded in the end to bone. But under the gratitude and relief, I felt a low throb of despair, for I knew him, I thought I knew him, and I never would have believed he'd destroy his only telescope, even in an extremity of rage. He was so careful with his belongings." I was able to speak again the next morning, so I dismissed the steward and allowed only Nancy to attend me. I preferred her silence. She neither avoided nor sought out my glance. When our eyes did meet, she did not look away in shame or disgust, nor did she try to communicate judgment or pity through some meaningful contraction of her eyebrows. She kept my daughter occupied and quiet in one corner of the room, and after feeding me broth she washed the blood from my head. I could scarcely feel her hands as she combed through the matted hair. An exemplary servant she was, that day. By evening I could walk, and shading my bruised face with a bonnet, I made my way on deck after supper. Most of the men only nodded in my direction, though even in the gathering dark I could tell which faces showed fear and which pity and which contempt. Only the new men, two Tahitians who'd come aboard a few weeks before, "'looked at me with open curiosity. "'And only Mr. Bailey, the third officer, spoke to me. "'Mrs. Dillon,' he said, "'I trust you are recovering from your fall. "'The captain did not look at me. "'He looked at the starboard rail "'regarding the southeast horizon through a telescope, "'a telescope I'd never seen before, "'longer and darker than the one he lost the day before. "'I called the steward to take me back to my quarters.' "'When did Captain Dillon get that telescope?' I demanded, once we were below. "'The steward nodded, as if he'd expected the question. "'He bought it before we left Sydney,' he said. "'It is English. Mahogany and leather and brass, thirty-five inches when fully extended. "'You did not know about it, madam?' "'He was not like Nancy. "'His dark eyes searched mine, asking me to look back. "'I turned aside and dismissed him, so he did not think I smiled for him.' for it had not been the captain's only telescope after all. With the arrival of the new telescope, it had become an extra telescope, a discardable thing, a destroyable thing. A piece of my pain lifted away, turned over like a page that's been read, and a small bubble of hope rose through me. Perhaps hope is too bright a word. What I had was a task, but what is hope if not something to do? I started collecting things the next morning. I knew the captain would leave me alone, he always did afterward. This time I reckoned on one day, perhaps two, and worked with a will, gathering anything that was damaged and replaceable, anything we had more of than needed, anything he did not care for. An old cutlass I wrapped in sheets and stashed in the bottom of a trunk. I hid away chipped plates and dulled knives and an outdated nautical almanac. "'anything that might be thrown or used to pierce, strike, or whip. "'One fog-bound night I tossed overboard an old musket with a broken frizen. Three days later the captain blamed Mr. Bailey for the loss of a receipt. "'He grabbed something off his desk, "'and Mr. Bailey put up his arm, expecting the volley. "'But it didn't come. "'Instead the captain stood there regarding a bust of his hero, James Cook. "'I'd placed it on his desk during my tidying up.' "'replacing a broken microscope he was wont to throw. "'What the devil!' he cried, "'then dismissed Bailey, shouting about incompetent officers. "'My whole body felt lighter at that moment, "'but there was still so much left to do. "'We must look for things Captain Dillon does not need,' "'I told the servant that evening. "'In answer to his questioning stare, I added, "'anything that might be in his way. "'The headdresses from Tahiti "'I shook my head. "'No, not items for trade. "'Things for himself, things lying about.' "'He regarded me for a moment, then his eyes widened. "'The missionary man gave him a book. "'Where is it?' "'We found it holding down a corner of a map in the stateroom. "'Jonathan Edwards' account of the life of the late Reverend David Brainerd. "'I almost laughed. "'A book less conducive to the captain's taste could scarcely be imagined.' "'It would serve to weigh down charts "'until it was thrown at someone. "'Hide it,' I bade the steward. "'He nodded, a conspiratorial smile visible despite his mustache, "'eyes bright with approval. "'I thrust the book at him and turned away, "'my face burning, knowing I'd made a mistake. "'Foolish man. "'He understood my strategy but had no skill at dissembling. "'He was caught shaking out a tablecloth over the side,' "'a tablecloth in which he'd hidden bent silver forks. "'But, Captain,' he protested, looking over at me, "'I stared back, willing him to silence. "'He received a dozen lashes for the lost silver. "'The captain administered the punishment himself. "'A skipper ought not deal out penalties "'as he can't see through himself,' he liked to say. "'I hated the steward for his stupidity, "'for very nearly betraying me, "'for his animal yells.' Nancy and I stayed below with my daughter, who cried out as the lashing began, covering her ears and crying for me to make it stop. I tried to sing over the noise, but Nancy refused. Crouched in the cabin with my daughter on her lap, her face remained still, unflinching, as above us each hideous, tearing crack of the lash punctuated her countryman's long, importunate screaming. "'Nancy!' I shouted. "'Nancy!' but she did nothing, and I knew then she'd done nothing the other times as well, that she allowed my daughter to hear everything. She looked straight ahead at the space I occupied before her, but refused to see me. Another crack and wail filled our ears, and I reached over and slapped Nancy hard across the face. Her brown face opened for a moment in shock, but as quickly closed, resuming its usual dispassionate mien. "'I'm ashamed to say I wept then, "'though I cannot say why I did. "'When it was over, "'we heard someone call out that he'd sighted land. "'We stayed below until the men had untied the steward, "'taken him to his berth, "'and washed the deck clean of his blood. "'And then we went above, "'where I found everyone looking, "'not east toward the beckoning coastline of Chile, "'but west at the dark line of storm pursuing us. "'I was glad.' Whatever happened, I knew the crisis would bring out the captain's best self. And so it did. He never lost his composure. When we were finally driven ashore and beached, he carried me out of the calder first, then our daughter, then Nancy, setting us down on safe ground. He returned to the wreck and brought out the steward, laying him on his side. When he knew everyone was on shore, he tried to go back for some of the cargo but the officers prevailed on him to leave off, shouting over the din that the calder was lost, and as if in answer, the surf began to batter her to pieces before our eyes. I saw him sink to his knees in the surf and howl into the storm. I could not hear him over the wind and waves and lashing rain, but I did not need to. Everything we owned and owed was on that vessel. I got up and heaved him from the water's edge, "'dragged him to higher ground, "'and pulled a sodden woolen blanket over ourselves. "'I drew him weeping into my arms. "'I thought, Captain Dillon, you careless boy. "'But aloud I said, "'Hush, Peter, we shall start again. "'It will be fine. You'll see.' "'He was still looking out to sea. "'God, can you imagine the horror of being out there?' he said. "'I could. "'For this is how it was "'when the telescope broke over my head.' It flashed like a sun and smelled of sulfur. And after that moment of partial coherence, when I thought we'd run aground, when I wondered if my daughter was safe, I passed into madness. And I believed, truly believed, that I was the ship, that I had run aground, that the cracking and splitting that rang in my head were my deck staved in, that the keening whale was my hull shivering itself apart. I did not wonder at it, a ship is a living thing it can sicken it takes on water and worms and barnacles from without and fear and resentment and secrets from within a ship eaten away at like that cannot survive for long the steward would sneak off during the night and disappear into valparaiso but first we huddled together on the beach officers and crew and servants the captain and our daughter and me irrespective of station and watched in helpless wonder as the waves pounded our ship into splinters and dragged her innards out to sea i was glad to see it go for all it meant we had nothing left with which to buy or sell it would take a long time for the captain to amass another arsenal of incidental objects
0: Parade for Hendrik. Written and read by Stephanie Nellen. Listening time, 14 minutes, 45 seconds.
4: Parade for Hendrik by Stephanie Nellen. Hendrik van der Veen's friends from the student rowing club haven't been invited to his funeral, but they've come regardless. They shift back and forth on the pews, wedge their backpacks between their legs, and stare at the caskets. Since that ambulance pulled up at the clubhouse on a post-party morning two days ago, since the doctor lit a cigarette and made them admit that they thought Hendrik asleep in his sleeping bag, although he had, as the doctor flatly stated, choked on his own vomit two hours ago, his friends have been stunned into collective embarrassment and guilt. A group of novice mourners who crowd the church and gape at the casket as if they expected Hendrik to jump out and tell them what to do now. Henrik's family occupies the front pews, wrapped in black velvet, silk, and cashmere. As one clockwork-powered display, they rise, kneel, and pray as the ritual dictates. This is not their first funeral, and it shows. Some students try to join the family's tribute by mouthing prayers or making the sign of the cross. Most are honest enough to blush at their charade. Only one of the students looks prepared for grief. Jonas de Boer, chairman of the rowing club, wears one of his many black suits. Since he started to write his thesis, his attire has become conservative. Almost out of his twenties, he waits for his body to catch up with his middle-aged soul. Already his thick black hair recedes from his brow, and his skin stretches around his eyes in preparation for wrinkles. "'Youth is overrated,' Jonas said to Hendrik, not long after they fell in love with each other. "'I want to be old, wise, untouchable and grumpy.' "'You are all that already,' Hendrik said with his twenty-year-old smile. "'Drink this.' He passed Jonas a small glass of homemade liquor. As diligent student of chemistry, he enjoyed applying the finer aspects of his field, Jonas gulped down the liquor and gasped. Brutal stuff. You're best yet. Hendrik grinned. It's for the party. Later in bed, Jonas slid his hand under Hendrik's t-shirt and caressed the warm skin. He traced Hendrik's heartbeat down his chest to his belly button. Outside, a pigeon clumsily landed on the windowsill and stared at them. Hendrik turned around, drew Jonas close, and kissed him, half on the mouth and half on the cheek. Jonas remembers Hendrik's breath against his neck and the pigeon's unblinking eyes, as he rises with the others. To the pipe organ's thundering "Pomp fenebre, the pallbearers carry the casket down the aisle. The thunder follow, chins raised, proud as if offering a sacrifice. At first, Jonas feels a familiar anger at the Van der Feins. Hendrik has been expelled from the family because of his first boyfriend. Jonas remembers the letter from Hendrik's father, the letterhead of Dr. A.M.H. Van der Feen with a stylized scalpel hovering next to the name. He remembers Hendrik shrugging and touching the thick paper as if it had spikes. He remembers composing replies in his mind. But as the Thunderfains file past him, Jonas discovers, with a lurch of guilt, that he also admires their mastery of funeral protocol. He senses a stiff version of Hendrik's grace in his family, an ability to melt into the environment without fading away, and he longs to walk with them and to know the proper ceremony to bid Hendrik goodbye. Outside, a hearse and a fleet of black cars are waiting, triangular gray flags flapping on their roofs. The vanderfanes distribute themselves into the cars. Hendrik will be buried in the new cemetery outside the city, a short drive from the church. As the family prepares to leave without them, the students grow restless. Some unlock their bikes, others smoke in short puffs and glance from Jonas to the black cars. Like a bad race, Jonas thinks. Everyone in the boat feels for the others' strokes, for a rhythm, but it's gone. Martin, who used to row in Hendrik's boat, walks towards Jonas. What happens now? The others pick up the question and murmur repetitions. What now? Where do they go? You've read the obituary, Jonas says. The burial will be at the cemetery. So, Martin says... We don't even know which route they'll take. What if they take the freeway?" Jonas kneels down to unlock his bike. Let's just get ready. I'll ask them. Before he's done with his bike, an ample woman separates from a group of van der and sways towards the students, who fall silent as they watch her approach. Like many middle-aged people, the woman singles out Jonas with his suit and quiet face. Hendrik used to say he looked like an insurance officer. Like Kafka. The woman extends her hand to Jonas without acknowledging Martin or anyone else. Ingeborg van der Feen. I'm Hendrik's mother. Jonas takes her hand. My condolences. Before we drive to the cemetery, I want to thank you and your friends for coming. The gesture is appreciated. Jonas nods. ''We don't want to impose on your time any more than we already have,'' she says. ''I'm sure you have lectures to go to, or some rowing obligations.'' She inhales, as if she wanted to push Jonas back with her chest. With his rough voice, Martin interrupts. ''We're here on our bikes. If you don't want to go too fast, we can trail along. We'd like to.'' ''He was our friend.'' The other students murmur in agreement. Ingeborg van der Feen glances at them over Jonas's shoulder. Your friend, she says. You were too drunk to notice he was dying. She points at Martin. If Hendrik was still alive, he wouldn't call you his friend. She looks at the others. Or any of you. Martin looks from the pointing finger to her face. It's true. It's kind of a grisly way to die, and we know it's partly our fault, and that's why we thought you might appreciate a grisly way to die. Martin takes a step back. He looks at her finger as if it had the power to smite him. Maybe that word was dumb, okay, but it's somehow shocking to have your best friend die the way people died in the 60s. It's so old-fashioned, you can't believe it happened." ingeborg van der feijn moves the finger towards martin's chest old-fashioned not in a romantic way or anything martin says the pallbearers slide the casket into the hearse and shut the doors with a smack as one the students startle martin and hendrik's mother freeze her finger pointing at his chest his mouth open the driver of the hearse starts the engine Ingeborg van der Veen retracts her finger and smiles a gratified feline smile. Goodbye. Don't come along. We don't want you. And Hendrik wouldn't have wanted you either. She leaves. The students look at Jonas who still holds the bike lock in his left hand. Ingeborg van der Veen's last words echo in his mind. Hendrik wouldn't have wanted you either. He wonders whether this is true. Suppose they would hear faint scratches and complaints from inside the coffin, and upon opening it again, discover that Hendrik was hung over but alive. Hendrik would sit up in his burial suit, groan, and upset his burial hairdo by scratching his head. He would loosen his tie, throw a silk pillow at Martin, and say, About time. It's impossible to breathe in this box. Jonas tries to imagine Hendrik raising his chin in the Van Feen fashion, saying, "'I don't want you here. Go away.' He can't. He imagines Hendrik wrapping his arms around his legs and resting his head on his kneecaps in this casket which looks like an ugly boat. He imagines meeting Hendrik's gaze. Gripping the bike lock tighter, he imagines Hendrik's smile. "'Hendrik,' he imagines, asking, What do you want us to do? Someone pats Jonas' shoulder. Martin. What are we going to do now? Jonas clicks the lock shut and slides it over the handlebar. Get ready. We'll go along. Narrow streets twist around the church. The students easily keep up with the cars. The cobblestones make the bells on the students' handlebars tinkle. It drizzles. Jonas is cold in his thin suit, but the hypnotic paddling calms him down. His body remembers the mornings before a race. The solemn approach to the starting line, each slow stroke exaggerated to build up the rhythm, the connection with the others. He smells the river, hears the oars dip into the water. On the bike next to him is Martin, shifting his jaw in what Jonas has come to know as deep concentration. Pedestrians stop to stare at the unusual funeral parade. One girl laughs and waves at them, immediately scolded by her girlfriend who points at the hearse. Outside the city center, the parade picks up speed. Jonas' legs adjust without him noticing. Over his shoulder, he sees his friends hunched over their handlebars, pedaling in the same rhythm. They are focused on the cars ahead of them now, careful not to lose them. The black cars try to shake them by speeding and weaving a pattern between lanes, but Henrik's friends keep up with them, a dangling silver thread of bikes floating through the late morning traffic. Jonas thinks, it is a race. He feels the familiar pull and glide forward, shooting down the river. Before them, the traffic light turns red, the students brake. The van der almost escape, but Martin just rides on across the intersection, past the honking cars. Come on, he shouts over his shoulder. The others follow. The cars honk louder and Martin continues shouting. Come on, one stroke a meter, you sissies. Hendrik loved every race he rode. He would close his eyes, pull the oar to his chest, slide backwards and forwards again and again, until they'd reached the finish line, where he would open his eyes and ask, did we win? They'd won often, but who could forget how, after a humiliating loss against the other club, their boat floating dejected behind the finish line while their competitors chanted we are the champions, Hendrik grinned and asked his teammates, great race, huh? The others groaned and splashed him with water. No, we lost, idiot. Cars and bikes reach the intersection with the Emma viaduct, a busy road leading up to the freeway. Here the route to the cemetery splits. Mourners in a hurry, take a right onto the Emma viaduct. All others follow the scenic detour straight on. They'll take the freeway, Martin pans. I would, if I was them. Hers and black cars put out their turn signals. All right, of course. See, Martin says, cars thunder past on the freeway below. Great view, Martin says, face slick with sweat. He licks his lips. So what do we do now? What Hendrik would have done, Jonas says. He and Martin look at each other. We'll lose them on the freeway, Martin says. But it'll be a great race, they want to say together, but their voices become muddled and it sounds like it'll be great anyways. With a deep breath, Jonas turns around and points to the right. Subdued cheers and some incredulous stares answer him. Jonas points right again. The signal jumps to green, the cars shoot forward, engines roaring. Jonas paddles as fast and hard as he can, as if he could drag the others along. "'Go on!' he shouts, waving forward with one hand. "'To the freeway!' The cars pick up speed as they approach the downward curve of the freeway ramp. Deafened by traffic, exhaust filling his lungs, Jonas flies over the fresh asphalt. The wind tears at his hair. Cars zip past on the freeway like bullets. Jonas glues his gaze to the final car in the Van der Fein string and spots an old man staring back at him through the rear window." The man's hairless skin stretches over his skull and his deep eye sockets mirror the hollow cheeks. As Jonas shoots forward the freeway, the old man opens his mouth, a gaping toothless hole and shouts. He laughs. A wild laugh Jonas can almost hear through the traffic noise. One after the other, the hearse and the black cars enter the freeway. Eyes locked with the old man, Jonas follows. Cars brake, honk, and swerve into the left lane, forced into making room for the students. Jonas and his friends breach the traffic barrier. After a moment, the cars tear loose from the bikes and become black dots on the horizon. Jonas slows down, legs numb, face throbbing, his tie rippling behind him. He turns around to see his friends' faces. Martin pulls up to his side and gives an ecstatic howl. Jonas lets go of the handlebars then and spreads his arms to the wind. He feels like a sail as he coasts down the road, limp cloth made taut and strong for a moment by a storm of love.
0: Listener-supported Boundoff is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Boundoff. Copyright bound off in the respective authors. All rights reserved.